Once again, good morning. And though I am constrained by time, it is my singular privilege and pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker for this morning with the message. If I had the time, I would tell you that he was born in British Guyana and later moved to London. But since I don't have the time, I couldn't tell you, wouldn't tell you that he was certainly know what it is to experience discrimination and hostility. And um, since I don't have the time, I could tell you that he became a Christian in the mid-1960s. And um, if I had the time, I would tell you that he was married to the lovely Rosemary Jameson of New Zealand, who became his wife. And if I had the time, I would tell you of all of his academic accomplishments, but he's a humble man, and he doesn't want me to tell you that. I can tell you of all of the places that he would have lectured and taught in the universities in the UK and other parts of the world, but since I don't have the time, um, I'm going to ask you to simply remember that in 1989, there was a special conference held by this guest speaker, and out of that, two very important organizations was formed. One is IIS. I see. I see you. Uh, it is an international institute of studies in Islamic and Christian or Christianity. And the second would have been the Barnabas Fund, which you are most familiar with. But if I had the time, of course, you know Barnabas Fund deals with serving the Christian community that are certainly um, in poverty and receiving discrimination and uh, all of those other atrocities. But since I don't have the time, would you please let's make room for our special guest speaker, Dr. Patrick Sugdea, who will present what God has laid on his heart today. But you are required to give him a special round of applause at this time as we welcome him to our pulpit, Dr. Sugdea. And if I had the time, I'd keep you here all day. But pastors have only given me 30 minutes. So if I keep looking at my watch, it's because he's only given me a limited amount of time, a set time, and I have to get off the pulpit. I'm running late, at least. We're, I think we're over five minutes, so I can still have my full half an hour. Oh, good. Thank you, Pastor. And thank you for your kind introduction. He found time to get the basics in. It's wonderful to be back here in the Bahamas and to be back here at Calvary. Rosemary and I feel a very uh, uh, important part of the life of the church because we are counted as uh, two of your missionaries. And I know you pray for us and support us and thank you for all that you have done for us. And also for your faithfulness in supporting the work of the Barnabas Fund. It is much, much appreciated. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. We pray that we might now hear your voice. Speak to us, O Lord, and reveal to us the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Will you turn with me, please, to 
Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. Reading from verse 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of our darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The apostle is describing his experience his experience of affliction, his experience of suffering, his experience of being a servant of God, his experience of being a minister of God. And he recognizes, even in this experience, something of the nature of his own humanity, something of the nature of his own body, something of his flesh. He describes the human condition, which is born out of weakness and born out of frailty. He describes the body as being little better than 
a vessel made out of common clay, which is so easily broken and so easily crushed. We think we are strong. We think we are powerful. Our age paints humanity as being the peak of everything. We can do anything. We can put a man onto the moon. We can create with technology that which seems to have been impossible. And yet when it comes down to it, a drop of water can kill us. The bite of a small mosquito can infect us and cause us to die. Paul is describing the weakness and vulnerability of the human condition. As the psalmist said, we are as but grass in the field. Today in all our glory we shine, and yet tomorrow we can be cut down as a stroke and we can be destroyed. And yet in this frail humanity, there resides a treasure that is both invaluable and indestructible. A treasure that is beyond belief and beyond human comprehension that we have residing in us, not just the mere knowledge of the glory of God, but the reality of the experience of the power of God. We are the living temples of God, the naos, the innermost shrine of deity resides in this human body, this frail flesh, this vessel of clay is the home of deity itself. For God fills you and me. So that, as Paul says, the power will be seen to be of God. That what keeps us and what sustains us, it is God himself, his presence and his power that carries us through life moment by moment, day by day. And as he describes this human condition, the power of God that carries us, so he turns to what for the Greeks would have been understandable language. He describes a sports stadium. He is looking at most probably at a wrestling match. Not so much boxing, maybe boxing and wrestling combined together. But that was one of the common sports of the Greeks. And as he looks at this wrestling match, he goes on to speak of what is happening. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. The meaning of the word here, hard pressed, is pressure being applied to you. In chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, he speaks of this pressure being so great that he and his colleagues despaired even of life itself. Was life worth living when the pressure is so great? The analogy is that of a person being placed uh, on the ground. They're lying down and a great rock is placed upon them. And as this rock bears down upon them, so literally their life is being squeezed out of them and they die. And so he speaks of this pressure 
We are hard pressed literally on every side, no matter where we turn. We experience this pressure. And yet this pressure does not crush us. Then he goes on to speak not just of an opponent sitting on this poor person, crushing them, the life out of them so that they can get the victory. He goes on to say, we are perplexed. The word here means at our wit's end. So the poor person who is a wrestler being beaten up, who is now find himself in huge difficulties because of the enormity of the pressure, is not sure what to do. He is filled with anxiety. He is filled with doubt. He begins to question himself. He's not sure what his enemy is going to do to overwhelm him. And there's a temptation now to give way to despair. But he faces a third problem, and that is he's persecuted. Now, the Greek word for persecute means literally to hunt down. You can think of a, an animal hunting its prey. Well, think of this wrestling uh, match, this ring. Here is this opponent. He seems to be so much greater than you are. So he pummels you to the ground. He sits on you. He literally squeezes the life out of you. You manage to get up. And you're going from corner to corner, and you don't know where to turn. You're at your wit's end. But more than that, he's hunting you. Everywhere you turn, he is there. There seems to be no escape from your enemy. As an animal tracks his victim with the purpose of destroying him, so you find yourself being tracked, and you do not know where to turn. And then he goes on to say, we are struck down. Finally, your opponent lands the blow. And you are now as a crumpled heap lying in the corner. And you can see all the crowds cheering for your opponent to finish you off. And you're lying there saying, do I want to get up? In a boxing match, suppose I suppose there'd be the countdown uh, to 10. Maybe someone would be saying, throw in the towel. He's had enough. He can't go on. That is the picture that Paul is describing. To be under pressure. To be at your wit's end. To be persecuted. And then to be knocked down. And in all of these areas, he speaks of this fighter having the will to continue. No matter what happens, the strength comes from God to go on. Though we are hard-pressed on every side, we are not crushed. Though we are at our wit's end, we do not give up hope. We are not in despair. Though we are hunted and persecuted, God will never forsake us. And though we are struck down, we are not destroyed because we have that strength to get up and to fight. And as we fight, so says Paul, so death is at work in us. We are broken, we are bruised, maybe the bones have gone, the blood is flowing 
and we do not die. The Greek here is not necklace to die an absolute death once and for all, but rather there is a living death. We have to get up to fight again and fight again and another battle and another battle, believing that there's an ultimate end. And this ultimate end is glory itself, is eternity, is heaven, that it's all for a purpose. And the purpose is divine. And the purpose is glorious. And that one day this fighter will enter into the arms of his beloved. And there he will rest forevermore. He will drink of the streams of eternal life. He will experience the reality of the sun in which there is no darkness and no death. And so pain and suffering will be removed. And life will be endless and life will be glorious. And there he will sing the songs of the redeemed as he basks in the presence of his beloved. Here is the apostle describing his life. Just over two months ago, Caroline, my colleague, my wife Rosemary and I were in northern Iraq. We were in Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan. And we were with a dear friend of ours. He's an archbishop of the Syrian Orthodox Church. He had been from Mosul. Now, Mosul is ancient Nineveh. And just over a year ago, ISIL, which has now become Islamic State, entered into Mosul. At a moment's notice, this terrorist group that have become an army, that have become a state, took possession of Mosul. The Christians were given no time. They were simply told to go, and they started to flee. But Nicodemus refused to go. He says, why should I leave? You see, the church in Mosul, his cathedral, had been there since the fourth, third or fourth century, one of the oldest churches in the world. So he refused to leave. Finally, the Kurdish interior ministry said to him, Archbishop, you must go. The terrorists are only about 100 meters away. They will kill you. So he finally leaves, arrives in Erbil, and we are there with him. We've known him for many years. We'd been with him several months prior to that. And this is what Archbishop Nicodemus said. He said they may take, they can take everything from us, but they cannot take God from our hearts. They can take our homes. They can take our possessions. But we have treasure in heaven which they cannot take. In other words, we are bereft of everything. We have lost, but we still have God. When we had asked him about his cathedral, what has happened to it, he broke down in tears. Because he said, my cathedral is now a mosque. 
And a few weeks ago, that mosque was now named the Mosque of the Mujahideen, a terrorist mosque, one of the oldest churches in Christendom, a terrorist center. And he breaks down and cries. But he says, my treasure is in heaven. God is in my heart. He now lives as a refugee, homeless, together with all his people. Tens of thousands, over 150, maybe 200,000 Christians, at a moment's notice, dispossessed, having lost everything. A young man who was in one of the church centers where the Christians are holed up was asked to describe his experience. He was found wounded, lying in a field. All around him were Christians who had been shot. They thought he had died, but he had lived. He said they came and took my mother and uh, my sisters away. All the women were taken away, most probably to be sold as slaves. His brother, his father, they were taken away and they were killed. And now only he is left and he is 17. But he still continues to affirm his faith, that he is a Christian, that they cannot take his Christian faith away from him. And he will continue. A mother is sitting there and she is weeping unconsolably because her tiny daughter has been taken away and sold into slavery. When we think of a Christian community, it is as if Paul's experience is being relived today. This very vulnerable Christian community, what are they? Just over a hundred years ago, there was the Armenian and Assyrian genocide. And the Christians in that area were taken to be killed. More than one and a half million were killed a hundred years ago, in 1915. By 1922-23, more than three and a half million had been massacred. We remember rightly the genocide of the Jews, the Holocaust. But we do not remember, it is not in our minds, the genocide of our Christian brothers and sisters. Their women taken into slavery, their men being systematically killed. I've just produced a short book. It's written, it's an authentic story of a Christian in what is known as the Long March. And I've edited it and written the foreword as well as the conclusion. I could not read the whole story when it was first given to me. I got halfway and I gave up. I'd never read anything so harrowing. And this was the experience of a Christian community. They faced death in 1922. In 1926, Britain promised them a state and reneged on it, and they were massacred. Just a couple of months ago, we were in Somali, outside of Duhuk, 
where 5,000 of them were thrown off of a bridge and massacred. And here now they're being massacred, sold into slavery. And here there are now refugees having lost everything. The pressure is so intense. It is unbelievable. They are their wits end. They do not know where to go. We are trying to rescue them. My colleagues went to the State Department in Washington to plead their cause. The State Department told my colleagues bluntly, we're not going to have Christians from northern Iraq. And we left at our wit's end. What are they to do? They're being hunted. And they're knocked down. That is the reality of their experience. They die daily. We received a request just day before yesterday. It's a simple request. The Archbishop wrote to us and says, can you provide 200 air conditioning units? Now, you think this is hot. If you are northern Iraq, it's over 50. You can break an egg and you can fry it on the tarmac. And so the elderly, in particular, are in desperate need of air conditioning simply to stay alive. We can't help. I'll tell you why. Because last week, Hasika in northern Syria was attacked by Islamic State. And tens of thousands of Christians have now fled Hasika, the city of Hasika in northern Syria on the borders of Turkey. And we are one of the few providers of Christian, of relief to the Christian communities. And so it is not just Iraq. It is what to do with Hasika, with Aleppo. Aleppo four years ago had more than 400,000 Christians. It has dropped to between 45 to 90,000. In a matter of weeks, Aleppo could fall and every Christians will either be killed, enslaved, or they will have to flee. And where are they going to go? Damascus may well be attacked. And what of the Christian community of Syria? There used to be one and a half million. Half the population are now refugees, internally and externally. Most of the Christians are trying to get out. In Iraq, all of those who were in Mosul and surrounding areas have fled to Kurdistan. And they want to get out. When we think of what constitutes our Christian faith, who are we as Christians? I want to ask you this question. The question which was answered by my friend, Archbishop Nicodemus. If they were to take everything from you, would you still proudly affirm, but my treasure is in heaven, and continue with the Christian faith? You say yes, but I want you truly to know this. If they took away your home today, if they killed your family, 
If you find yourself now in a refugee camp, sitting there with 50 degrees centigrade, and you have no hope, because the Americans have betrayed you, the British have betrayed you, your government has betrayed you, and the world church is not bothered with you. They have turned their backs on you. What would you do? How many of your young people would continue to say, I am a follower of Jesus? How many in this congregation would survive day after day, week after week, month after month, recognizing that you are dying daily? You long for a death. As Paul says in chapter 1, I despaired even of life itself. I wanted to die. But death doesn't come because God says you must live. And you have to live with that reality of the constant dying. And all that you have awaiting you is the life that is to come of glory itself. And your joy is only in that. Your hope is only in that. The life that you live is that of the glory of God within you and which will be realized one day when you enter into his eternal and ever-living presence. Paul's words that seem so strange to us as we reflect and as we read them, yet today is the experience of many, many Christians around the world. Our faith was born in suffering. We come to the table of our Lord. And very rightly, our brother pointed out to the, us the significance of the bread and the wine. Well, I want to continue with that as I come to conclude. The bread that we break, is it not the body of Christ? The blood that we take, the wine that we take, is it not the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord? And so we take and eat of his body and we drink of his blood the body which is broken and the cup, the cup that contains the elements of his blood, which is the cup of suffering. On earth 2,000 years ago, our Lord lived and he died. And on the cross, his body was broken and his blood was shed. And so we remember to this day that glorious event that brought us our salvation and with his resurrection, new life. And so we partake of these elements filled with sadness as we remember the awful pain that he suffered. And yet at the same time with joy as we expectantly await his coming again. But I want you to note this. His body 
What is his body? He is in glory. But his body is his people. You and I constitute his body. All believing, born again, men and women, boys and girls who belong to him, now constitute his body and his blood. There's a fountain filled with blood that flows through Emmanuel's veins. And that blood flows through our veins, which has renewed us, which has cleansed us, which has given us new life. And so today, that body is again being broken. And that blood is again being shed. And it is our body that is being broken. And it is our blood that is being shed. Because as Paul says, we are one body. And if part of that body hurts, the whole body hurts. If part of that body is broken, the whole body is affected. We are one glorious body being prepared as the bride of Christ to meet our heavenly bridegroom. But here on earth, we are broken and bruised. Have you ever thought of the church in that way? Have you ever thought in glorious Bahamas, with what seems to be a physical paradise, so that you even name an island Paradise Island, that you are a part of Jesus Christ, in whom is your salvation, but a part of his body in whom there is suffering. And so the cup that you take is not, not the cup of salvation. Is it not the cup of suffering? The bread that you take, is it not the body of Christ that is broken again? And again and again we are broken and we are crushed. Again and again our wounds are made bare and we bleed. And you and I are meant to be crushed. Even as that seed falls into the ground and dies and bears fruit. So we fall into the ground and die and in dying we live and the church lives on and on. She does not live on because of prosperity and materialism and how much money that you've got, the lavishness of your buildings and the orchestration of your services. She lives because the seed is crushed. And so the life of Jesus is seen and the power of God is displayed. Ultimately, it is God who keeps his church. For he holds his church in his hand. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. Come death and destruction, come afflictions and pressure. Comes the dark night and the endless road. The Lord holds his church in his hands. And he will never let go of that church. And brother and sister, he holds you in his hands.
whatever the pressure you now face, whatever the affliction you are experiencing, whether as you age, so your bodily functions age and you become weak and frail and seemingly futile and fruitless, yet it's the Lord that holds you. And if you are young and strong, so you may seem to be, yet it is God who holds you. And he will keep us and sustain us until he brings us home to himself. I want you to think about the church in Syria and Iraq to this day. I want you, when you look at the news, to think upon them. And I want you to think upon them in a special way. They are your family. If you had a brother or a sister or an auntie or an uncle or someone living in Iraq today, you would be glued to the news. And every time you heard about Iraq, you'd be thinking of them. Well, your family are in places like Iraq, in Syria, places like northern Nigeria, places like Kenya and Tanzania and Egypt and North Africa and Pakistan and all these countries of the world. That's where your family are. And when you think of the, your family, you think of feelings and emotions. You feel, that's the first thing you do. Can you shed a tear for your brother and sister? I do not ask you to give a single dollar I ask you to shed a tear. And you know, that may be the most difficult request I could ask of you. When Jesus was at the graveside of Lazarus, you read two words, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. For in our compassion we weep. When we see the suffering, so our hearts are broken. And when we discover our brothers and sisters and we know their frailty, so we should weep. Are you able to do that? And if you weep, can you then offer up a prayer for them, day and night? Just a short prayer, Lord bless your people, Lord rescue your people. And if you can then offer up a prayer, can you then consider what you can do? The Barnabas Fund has just started Operation Safe Havens. We're now in the rescue business. We've gone around countries like America pleading with governments to open their doors. The only one that has accepted so far is Poland. One of the poorest countries in Europe has given us initially visas for 60 families, that's over 300 odd people, and then they said they will extend it to a thousand families. And so we've already brought 159 people, all evangelicals, well primarily, out of Damascus into Beirut. And then next week, we're putting them on a plane from Beirut to Warsaw. And there the Christians will welcome them and look after them. The Czech Republic have indicated that they will take 100. And so we will go on rescuing. But for every individual, we need to raise the funds to assist them, to make them free, to give them liberty. So God bless you and thank you 
for your continued support, for your prayers. I know I'm speaking to the converted because you have been faithful in your concern for God's suffering people, your brothers and sisters. Thank you.